With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Hey, it's me, Lars Larson. Thanks for checking out my podcast. And be sure to tell a friend about The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. And you know naysayers always go to the head of the line, just come equipped with a strong opposing point of view, which usually gets screened out on talk shows. On this show, you'll go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. If you send emails they all come right to me and no one else and if you get a reply well i try to reply to all of them that's the courtesy i'd like to extend to you if you take the time to write to me i'll write back now if you write me a book i'm not going to write you a book back but uh send it to talk at lars and vote in our twitter poll you can find the question every day at lars larson show on twitter which i'm more enthusiastic about not completely enthusiastic about but more more so than i was before elon musk bought a nine percent stake in the company and got a seat on the board of directors um i want to ask you about this because joe biden has now extended the student loan pause for another few months but two years without student loan payments And I know some of you will take this very personally because you say, I borrowed that money and I can't afford to pay it back. Well, you know what? Borrowing money and not being able to afford to pay it back is kind of an all-American thing. There are lots of people who fill up their credit cards or they buy a car they can't afford, they buy a house they can't afford, they spend money on things they can't afford, and then they can't pay the money back. I get that. I'm not very sympathetic to it because if you say, I'm going to buy something foolish, and then I'm going to tell people I can't afford to pay it back, then you're not willing to honor your obligations. But this, this is something else. Because this isn't you whipping out your Visa card and buying an expensive dinner to impress your new girlfriend. This is not buying the car you can't really afford to drive. Uh, This isn't spending money on a vacation you can't really afford to take. This is people who are saying to Americans, you need to back us up and pay off our loans because we went out and got an education. We got a college degree. Maybe it was an AA. Maybe it was a BS. Maybe it was a piled high and deeper, PhD. Um, Whatever you got, you decided to buy it. And I don't have a lot of sympathy for you, and I'll tell you why. Because if a young man or woman in America right now says, I'd like to go get a degree in X, whatever X happens to be. I want to have a master's degree in this. I would ask you, what are you planning to do? Is this a hobby or is this about actually doing some work? Now, for some people, education can be a hobby. You want to go be an, you want to get an archaeology degree. Great. 
Have you checked the pay scales in archaeology lately? My understanding is that if you're a famous archaeologist and churn out books that sell well, you can make some money. Otherwise, you're going to probably teach archaeology. You'll go on some digs, and it'll be interesting. I mean, that's what I consider a hobby. And if you can actually make money at your hobby, I mean, Tina and I used to have a little sailboat, right? We go out and go sailing. I love sailing. And I said to my friends, I would love to own a wooden boat. But I probably can't own a wooden boat until I'm retired because they take basically full-time maintenance. And I know that I would not be very good at the maintenance. I would probably have to hire somebody else to do some of it because I'm, that's not where my skills and talents lie. But for somebody, if I imagine the perfect job for somebody who's a real craftsman and knows how to work on boats, if someday he finds a way to get somebody to pay him, to do what he already enjoys doing, that's where you get your hobby married in with your making your living, and you'll look forward to every day of work. You don't say, oh, my God, I've got to go out and refinish another teak deck. Okay, that's great. But if you're going to school to learn something to pursue as a profession, you're buying a set of mental tools. That's what a college education is. So when you go in and say, I'd like to borrow $200,000 to get the mental tools to do this, the reasonable question to ask is, well, when you get that $200,000 mental tool set, will it pay you enough money that you can pay the 200000 back and still live on the income you make? If you say, oh, no, no, I, there's no way I'd make enough money back from a master's of fine arts or, you know, a degree in art appreciation or beetle tracking or button sorting or whatever. Uh, no, it'll never pay back. And you go, then that's a hobby. That is a hobby. We all have hobbies. I mean, I go hunting. I go bow hunting. I go rifle hunting. And you say, Lars, you, you, you go rifle hunting. We joke about it. If you go hunting and you say, yep, I've got my, uh, my pickup truck, bought it used for $25,000, and then I went out and spent $1,000 on a nice hunting rifle and bought a few boxes of shells at you know, $30 or $40 a box, then I'm going to burn about $200 worth of gasoline, I'm going to go out and spend a week of my time, and I'm going to come home with 150 pounds of meat. And when you calculate out how much that meat cost you, well, it came out to about $75 a pound, and you say... But I didn't do it to feed my family. I mean, you're still going to eat the meat, but you did it because you enjoyed the experience. Great. That's a great reason to spend money. But if you buy a college degree and then say, I plan to get all these mental tools, but I don't know how to actually make a living with it or pay the money back that it costs to buy the tools, it would be like me. My father-in-law welds. Right? If I said to my wife, I'm going to go out and spend $30,000 on welding equipment, she'd say, what are you going to do with that? And I'd go, oh, just tinker around. She'd say, you're going to spend thirty grand on welding tools and then just kind of dink around with it? You're not going to actually make back the thirty grand you spent on the tools? Let's not do that, okay? And if a man or woman, instead of saying, I want to borrow $150,000 to get a college degree that will never pay for itself, right? You're asking the public to pay for your degree for your hobby. If I went to a bank and I'd said, I want to open an auto mechanic shop, I want to fix cars, okay? Not my, I, I would love to tinker, I'd like to tinker around with cars, but it's not what I would do for a living. But if I said, I'd like to borrow 150000 the first thing the bank is going to say to me is, well, Lars, after you open that shop, you've borrowed 150 of our money, are you going to be able to pay it back? And I say, well, no, actually my business plan 
uh, says I'll barely make a living out of it, and that's assuming I don't have to pay you back. The bank would say, get out of our bank. Leave. We don't want to see you. Leave. Come back with a business plan where you want to borrow an amount of money to buy the tools to do some work that will earn enough money to pay the money back first and pay yourself a living. That's Now, the young man or woman who wants to start a small business will be told no all day long on borrowing 30000 or 50000 to start a business by buying a set of tools, meaning a sh- renting a shop, buying some tools, you know, wrenches and such. The bank won't even look at you if you can't give them a business plan for paying it back. But all day long in America, we're loaning trillion. We have loaned almost $2 trillion to people who say they can't pay it back. Consider this. Um, brand new survey, online survey, of more than 1,000 student loan borrowers that found 72% of federal loan borrowers say they are not financially ready to resume monthly payments. Well, of course they're not. They're paying, like, on some of the student loans, 2%, 3%. You say, you're not charging me much in interest. And, and what do you got? I've already got the education. You can't repo the education in my brain. We'll be back in just a moment. You've got the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'll get back to your phone calls and emails in a moment. As you know, it's 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. Many of you send me some very complimentary notes. Uh, you're the greatest and all that. I'm, that's nice to hear. But I know who the greatest really are. And one of the greatest in our business, uh, that of talking and getting new ideas in front of you, is Adam Carolla, and we were just uh, discussing the fact that it's been way too long since the two of us have talked. Congrats on all your success over the last couple of years, and Adam, you've you've made it well through the the two years of the pandemic and all the hoorah and sturm and drang. Yeah, I I'm fine. You know, I, I got a lot of people angry at me, but um, I'm physically fine. Doesn't that tell you that you're doing your job, but people are angry at you? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think most of the time, and, and, you know, unless you work at a bakery or something like that, but, you know, for me, I sort of knew what I knew and I expressed it and it, and it wasn't popular, but I said to somebody the other day, if they wanted you to go to a flat earthers meeting and stand up at the podium, would you just say the earth was flat or would you say the earth is round? And if you said the earth was round, then you wouldn't be popular, but how, would it bother you if you knew what you were saying was true? Wouldn't bother me. By the way, Adam is most recently the author of Everything Reminds Me of Something, Advice, Answers, But No Apologies. And isn't that the important thing, the point you've just made? We've got too many people in politics and other places who say good things, in some cases very brave and profound things, and then within 10 seconds sometimes they're turning around and apologizing for saying it. Have you figured out that phenomena? Well, I've figured out that you can't apologize because that just begats more apologies. So I think a lot of people were working under an old structure where, you know, back in the day, someone would say something, someone would get offended, and then, you know, the publicist would craft some sort of apology and you would apologize, and you turn the page and move on. But it doesn't really work anymore. You still get fired. 
so my what I've been saying for the last several years is no more apologies. That just makes for more demands of apologies. They're essentially terrorists taking hostages, and you're negotiating with them and buying them back. That's just going to get more hostages taken. I guess it's like, I mean, you live in California. It's like going and swimming at the beach. If the, if the shark manages to draw a little bit of blood, a little bit of blood in the water just tells the rest of the sharks it's, it's lunchtime. Yeah, and a, a little bit of blood tells all the swimmers to, to get out as well. And so, you know, that's kind of what we had. We had a little bit of COVID, and it was affecting elderly people and it was affecting sick people and it was affecting morally obese people and we all the healthy swimmers just got out of the ocean too but doesn't that tend to be the what happens when we let government solve a problem uh you you hand them a hammer and everything in america looks like a nail and they start pounding as hard as they can yeah they're going to do what they're going to do and you know they're not going to say sit back let it run its course there's nothing we can do but Well, there is something you could do, you know, diet, exercise, get some sunshine, take some vitamin D, you know. But they're going to start talking about mandates. We're going to close this down. We're going to crush the virus, you know what I mean? Like, you know, remember, you look back on all those clips, like what Biden's going to do is he's going to crush the virus and open the economy. It's like, how how would one do this? Um, They make proclamations and they just snap into action, but. It doesn't really matter if it's effective or not or how it affects people. I mean, I'm in Los Angeles. We just closed schools for a year and a half. Didn't do anything. We just closed school. Well, it harmed kids. Well, and the real conundrum to me seemed to be that when there were actors who had the authority to do it, like, say, Ron DeSantis of Florida, who said, we're not going to close the economy. In fact, we're going to do as little of that as we possibly can. We're not going to close down the economy. We're not going to close down schools. We're not going to stop living. All he got from people like Biden and the folks around him was grief. Yeah, very, very sad. And and also, I, I, this weird shame thing, which is, and this is really the, the time we're at, which is probably not a good time politically, which is, it was, it was all the politicians, but it was also all of CNN and USA Today and the Los Angeles Times. They all just went after DeSantis, and then when nothing happened, they doubled down. It was at that point they needed to sort of eat it and move on, but they just kept <clears throat> they just kept going. So I think they got shamed a little bit, and that angered them. And then they doubled down. And even now, you have Gavin Newsom heading to Florida, ironically talking about freedom. <laughs> the guy who shut the beaches down. <laughs> In, in Los Angeles, the guy shut down outdoor dining, the guy shut down schools, it, it has the nerve to talk about freedom. I'm talking to Adam Carolla, who, of course, has one of the most popular podcasts out of there. Uh, I don't know where you rank out of the seven or 800,000 podcasts worldwide, but I know you're one of the top podcasts, and I've, I've had the pleasure to be on that. His new book is called Everything Reminds Me of Something, Advice, Answers, But No Apologies. And this cancel culture and the apology culture seems to hit people in your line of work. I mean, my wife reminds me all the time, I'm not funny. But you made your living being funny, and you still do. And yet these days, funny folks seem to be uh, at sort of at the sharp end of the spear of cancel culture. Well, they're kind of the last. 
you know, like once you get to the comedians, you've gotten to everyone, right? Yep. You know, once you got to the comedians, you got to the politicians a long time ago and the school teachers and, and everywhere else. So they try to get to the and also the comedians do the best job of, of making the point his, you know, you know, sort of succinctly and in a digestible fashion. So if you really kind of think about it and I'll, I'll paraphrase, but he sort of, when John Stewart went on Stephen Colbert's show, you know, like a year ago and said, you know, we've been arguing over where the virus had emanated from. Was it the <laughs> yeah. lab? Was it the wet market, Wuhan or whatever? And, and, you know, you were called a racist if you said it came from the lab and there was a lot of vitriol. And he just sort of went on and said some, again, I will uh, paraphrase, but he sort of said, like, they found it. Hershey's bar and the Hershey's candy bar factory was up the street. Wouldn't you assume it came from the Hershey bar factory? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, of course. And and everyone laughed and it was succinct. And and if you notice, after he made that joke, we sort of stopped arguing over it. Like or at least stopped calling people racist who thought it may have come from the left. So that's the danger of comedians to the left they can say something that's truthful and we and we'll reset immediately there's no you know after john stewart said that they didn't call any senator that said it came from the lab a racist anymore no it was kind of a refreshing moment but do you suppose the rest of the people in comedy didn't take a lesson from that I'm talking to Adam Carolla, who, of course, has a great podcast, and his latest book is called Everything Reminds Me of Something, Advice, Answers, But No Apologies. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I have the great pleasure of having had Adam Carolla with me, who's got a great podcast. I highly recommend it. And his latest book is called Everything Reminds Me of Something, Advice, Answers, But No Apologies. Let's start with the advice part. What, what kind of advice would you give an America today where the latest poll shows 74% of the entire country thinks we're on the wrong track with a president uh, and, a, and a Congress, a president allegedly elected by 81 million votes, which some of us just flat don't believe? Well, you know, my answer to people is you have to sort of get back to a sort of good old common sense, horse sense, you know, wisdom-based thinking. You know, if you're watching the news and they're telling you a bunch of stuff about COVID, but you notice that your young kids are fine and that all their friends are fine and their classmates are fine, then maybe this isn't what they're saying, you know? Or if somebody says, you know, we're going to fix the border problem by not enforcing a bunch of laws and taking down a bunch of border wall, maybe that's not going to fix it. Or we're going to fix the economy by printing billions of dollars and putting it back in the economy. Like, there's a certain point when it just kind of becomes about, as a parent, as a, as a citizen, you know, you go, broccoli is good for you. And someone says, I have a new dietetic fudge. There's a party that has to, like, kind of stop and go, you know, I think Grandpa would have wanted us to eat broccoli. <laughs> and get back to a sort of Americana, sort of sense-based, you know, sort of what the old what the old timers knew and how they knew how to take care of business, you know, like a, a versus 
thoughts, notions, what I feel in my heart, you know, the, this, none of the stuff that works. But all of that takes some, I guess, some sacrifice because uh, I know you're, the last time I talked to you about your kids, I think they were still at home. I don't know if they're still at home, but I'm sure that, you know, some of the kids might say, well, listen, Dad, I'd love to eat fudge for dinner. And you say, well, you're going to have a stomach ache tonight or tomorrow morning, uh, and it's not good for you long term. Your kids are probably smart enough to know that. But the sacrifice somebody has to make to say, well, if you require me to believe that Joe Biden's answers to the economy or answers to the border or answers to gasoline are not the right ones, that's going to require me to admit that I voted for a real dummy, uh, as opposed to sticking to my belief that, no, Joe's got the right way and that orange man was bad. Um, you have to give that up, I guess, to be able to eat the broccoli, don't you? Yeah, I think a lot of it is cognitive dissonance. I think a lot of it is people going, "This is the way I voted, and I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm sticking with it because I don't want to be wrong. I, I just don't want to have to sit and admit that the guy I like is doing a piss poor job of, of running the country and." People that have an intellectual honesty do that. Most don't, and they just get into, yeah, but what about, you know, whatever on the other side? And so part of it is going to have to be, and part of the calibration that I'm saying that you have to make as a human being is understanding when you're wrong, understanding when it's time to walk things back or apologize or say, I did the the wrong thing, and it's not going to happen again. Yeah, it'd be nice to see that happen. It sounds like this fall we may get exactly that when Americans make a choice about who they want to run the House, who they want to run the Senate, which effectively, you know, puts Joe Biden in a box because he's got majorities in both houses now. They can pass, in theory, whatever they want and put it on his desk, and and they haven't done a lot of that either. It, It suggests that it's not just the Republican Party that lacks a backbone, but maybe the Democrats lack a backbone as well. Well, they... Everyone, you know, politicians by nature are sort of running a never-ending marathon, which is essentially a popularity contest, you know, which is not what you want. Obviously worried about what the New York Times might write about you. But, yeah, I think at a certain point, people are going to have to just get back to what I always just sort of call diet and exercise. You know, we don't need another... You know, there's 200,000 diet books on Amazon right now. Does anyone need any of the information that's in those diet books? You know, there doesn't need to be any experts. It's just, you know, eat the broccoli, do the exercise. That's it. You go, I don't want to do it. You know, that's fine. But but don't try to convince me that there are other things that work better. We, We know what works. Family and education. Raise your family. Keep the family intact mother, father, raise the children. It's a pretty simple equation. This stuff is kind of nature-based. You know, it's not necessarily even God-based, and it's not, it's not political. It's just kids who have two parents stand a much better chance of doing well in society, monetarily, emotionally, mentally, and, uh, you know, diet and exercise, parents and education, and everything else sorted way out but programs money and more dietetic fudge is not the answer do you think uh, i'm talking to adam carolla his latest book is called everything reminds me of something advice answers but no apologies as the government seems to have failed in so many different ways you mentioned a couple 
the schools have failed by saying, we thank you for the cash, but no, we're not going to educate your kids. And they might go back to school this fall, or they might, like 40% of the population in Washington, D.C., black kids are going to get locked out of school by the same crazy rules that shut the economy down during the pandemic. That as, as families and individuals start to say, hey, the government is not getting its job done. They're not protecting us. The, the police have stopped doing their job. Prosecutors stopped doing his job. The courts and the cops have stopped doing their jobs. The schools aren't doing their job. Uh, do you think at some point maybe Americans can will say, then fine, I'm going to have to do for myself. Uh, I'm going to have to protect myself. I'm going to have to educate my own kids and maybe make a more self-reliant America. It'd be nice if we could get back to that kind of independence. It's, it's, it's disheartening that, as you know, that the government grows and people sort of cheer it on, you know, and they we're going to hire more IRS agents and we're going to have more regulation. And, and these people sort of, you know, applaud as it, and, and by the way, I, I would applaud it, too, if I if I knew it was going to work out. It never seems to it never seems to work out which is the problem now. I don't know how they don't know it never seems to work out, but that's where experience and wisdom and horse sense sort of comes to play, and that's what we need. We need a more independent... uh, We need to get back to a more independent way of thinking. But as the government employs more people and more people become sort of arms of the government, then the pool of independent you know, small business oriented people, that pool starts to shrink. And the next thing you know, we're taking a vote on how much free cheese the government should give out. And all the, there's more people taking free cheese than the ones making the cheese. And that the bill gets passed. I'm talking to Adam Carolla. His new book is called Everything Reminds Me of Something, Advice, Answers, But No Apologies, and of course, his great podcast. Hey, does the high price of CBD have you rationing or just doing without? You shouldn't have to live that way. Get the relief you need right now. Go to genericcbd.com. They sell premium CBD for less, a lot less. Here's an example. A leading brand of CBD salve costs about 50 bucks. At genericcbd.com, it's on sale, $19.95. The amazing CBD muscle and joint cream that I've been telling you about the last few weeks, you see similar cream selling for up to $80. And that's if you can find it. At genericcbd.com, it's in stock and on sale, $29.95. That's a $50 savings. They have incredible prices on all their CBD products, but you're not going to find them in any store, at least not yet. You can only get them at genericcbd.com. Give them a try. You might be shocked at how much money you save. That's genericcbd.com, your number one source for generic CBD, genericcbd.com. These products and statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease or illness. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. uh, I'll get to calls in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. As you know, for 25 years, naysayers go to the head of the line. If you've got the guts, you can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show uh, or at LarsLarson.com. And you can also tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show. So where are we going from here? Adam, uh, there are some folks out there saying we're on the verge of a civil war. I'd like I'd like to know your advice, answers, and no apologies on civil war in America. Well, I think where we're going is you know half the country is 
going to a safe space and the other half is going to an octagon to roll around with some jujitsu expert, you know, and half the country is going toward a Tesla and the other half of the country is buying a Jeep, you know, and one half is, you know, moving to the west side of Los Angeles and the other side's moving to Montana. You know, it's just, I think, I think we're separating uh, just like we're going to separate geographically. Like most people I know who live in Los Angeles, they're, they're plotting their exit. They're looking at places like Texas. They're looking at places like Florida. They're looking at places that handled COVID without locking the schools down and locking the small businesses, shutting the churches, shutting the beaches, you know? So I think what you're going to do is you're going to get this group that is, that is basically going to self separate. If you're the, you know, if you, if you like your guns and you like your freedom, then you're thinking about moving to Florida. If you, if, if you're passionate about the transgender community and uh, and abortion on call, then you're going to move to California. The problem then is the states that are pro all the left stuff are going to fall apart because they're going to lose the, the earners and the workers. And they'll then turn to the federal government and say, you see the trouble we're in, you've got to send us more. Because California, your state, I, I lived there when I was a little kid a couple of times in Inglewood, believe it or not, and, and in Northern California. But the uh, the state should be on 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 paper should be one of the most prosperous places in america and yet it has as i understand it the largest percentage of below the poverty line people how does the state with so much potential end up in a situation like that and now you're going to lose you're going to lose a lot of the folks who who uh, donate all that cash to sacramento yeah um i i can't see a real long-term sustainable future if that's the direction the state you know, is going to go. The state's going to have to sort of tack back toward the middle in order to attract people who would like to raise a family, afford a home, and have a business. I mean, you know, I employ people, and I employ younger people, but not, you know, not 22, they're 32 or 36 or in that age range. You know, they're, they're married, maybe they've had a kid, they make sixty grand a year, eighty grand a year, but they're looking at houses that are one point seven million dollars. Ridiculous! How is that going to work? I mean, they're looking at you couldn't find anything decent in a decent neighborhood for anything under one point three million. How are you going to have a bunch of youngish married couples that you know maybe their combined income is a you know, $150,000, how are they going to buy a house that's $1.75 And if they stay as renters for their entire lives, and I'm hearing more and more of that inclination among that age range, Adam, from people, friends and acquaintances and employees of my own, uh, who say, well, you know, I'll probably just rent indefinitely. Or they, they don't talk. I mean, when I was a kid, they, they you know, everybody said, when I get to my 20s and I've got a decent job, I'm going to buy a house as fast as I can. You're right. There are, there are an awful lot of people now who, who may have effectively given it up almost indefinitely and accepted, I'll probably never own a house. There's some freedom to that. You can give notice and, and move out when you want, but the, the downside is you don't accumulate much and, and you take away some of the sense of community because when people own a house, 
They give a damn what's going on in their neighborhood. When they don't, they say, you know what, when this neighborhood gets bad enough, we'll move somewhere else. You can't do that as easily when you own a house. Yeah, and you talk about that sort of generational wealth. Well, of course, you have a bunch of people into their 40s, 50s, 60s. They're all renters. Their kids are adults now. What is there to leave their kids? How do you get out of it generationally? You know, I mean, out here in California, again, you make 65 grand a year. How are you going to afford a, you know, $900,000 condominium? And then, and then when you don't, you never, yes, it, it never accrues. You never, you never make any money. You never leave anything behind. And you, you don't have the power of that where you could take another loan because your house has gone up in value over the last 10 years and buy a second vacation house somewhere in Palm Springs or something like you, it really stagnates a group. And that's what you see in California. Just a lot of groups that are just their parents were renters and their parents, parents were renters. The podcast star Adam Carolla is with me. He's the author most recently of everything reminds me of something advice answers, but no apologies. So Adam, you just laid out a great uh, argument for relocation of the Carolla uh, clan. Adam, thank you very, very much. Thanks, Lars. Always great to talk to you. That is Adam Carolla. We'll be back in just a moment. I'll get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll and tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show and welcome back to the Radio Northwest Network. It is a pleasure to be with you and I'll be glad to get to your calls shortly at 866-HEY-LARS. One of the stories I like doing most on this show is when we expose the government, which creates problems for people in many cases, and then when they've actually created a catastrophic problem, like your big, nice house falling down a hill, literally, uh, they say, oh, it's not really our fault. That's that's your fault. We're not responsible. Now, I've been following this in the five months since a family in Bellevue, Washington, watched their house slide down a hillside. Fortunately, nobody was hurt, and that's good. And the man who represents that family is Dave Brickland, an attorney who joins me now, because it sounds as though the city is trying to say, this isn't our problem. We don't owe you a new house. Mr. Brickland, welcome to the program. And Tell me what's happening with your clients. Well, thank you, Lars. Uh, it is kind of sad, sad state of affairs. I, you know, whether it's a, a government utility or a private utility, uh, you know, it just seems like folks aren't willing to take ownership of their problems. And uh, it, it's a very sad situation. You know, when this house got swept off its foundation, as you say, lucky as all get out that no one was hurt. Uh, Mrs. Surdy was asleep in the middle of the night in her bed and uh, got thrown literally across the room and uh, came out of it without much in the way of uh, physical damage. Emotionally, the family scarred. I mean, all of their um, possessions, their worldly belongings, their keepsakes, everything uh, in a pile of mud carted off to the landfill. Uh, it, it's really been a, a very sad state of affairs. And, and, you know, when you would think when a water line breaks, the owner of the water line would take responsibility for it. Um, yep. City isn't city isn't doing that. Uh, we we're not quite sure why. It seems pretty straightforward to us. You got a water line. It's on a, a steep hill that's prone to move. Um, the water line bursts and um, you know destroys the home, destroys these people's lives, and uh, the city's 
now five months later saying, well, we're still studying the situation and it's going to take many more months until we figure it out. And, you know, John and Barb Surdy, like the day after this happened, we're ready for the city to come to them and make good. And here it is five months later and city's still waffling. It's, it's, so that's what's forced us to, to file the lawsuit because we, we've given them all the time we can and it just doesn't make any sense to us why they're not owning up to this. Now, attorneys like you tend to say, we want a remedy, and that means we want this fixed. What would the remedy be in this case? And, and should the city of Bellevue say it was our pipe, uh, it broke, it caused damage to your house, we owe you a new house, either on that yeah. site or if, that, if that's not possible, and I don't, I don't know what that situation is right now, uh, then we owe you a new house or the appropriate yeah. amount of money somewhere else, right? Right. Well, that, you're right. It's, it basically boils down to... Uh, money in these situations. Typically, the um, you know, if we end up in court, and we hope not to, I'll come back to that in a sec, uh, you know, a, a judge or a jury would decide, okay, here's the damage that you've suffered. Here's the damage to the real estate. Here's the loss of the house. Here's the loss of everything in the house. Here's how much for your emotional damages. And they would put a number on all that. Um, and uh, But we're we're hoping not to end up in court uh, we have been pleading with the city to be responsible, to be sensitive, to be, you know, re- recognize that these are the Bellevue citizens who were doing nothing wrong. And because of a Bellevue pipe bursting, you know, their lives have been destroyed. And so we're asking the city to, you know, to, to be sensitive and, 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 and relate to what these people are going through. And, and instead of making good as as quickly as possible. They're just dragging it out as long as possible. Now, I understand that's what the city lawyers and the city bureaucrats are, you know, kind of paid to do is drag your feet, delay, paying, you know, what what you owe as long as possible. But, you know, we've been pleading with the policymakers at the city, the city council, the mayor, the city manager, trying to have them insert themselves into this and tell their staff, let's make things right and let's do it as fast as we can and you know so far we haven't had that well, response let me ask you something mr brooklyn because i know a lot of people will say well it's probably covered by insurance although i i'm not on a, on a i'm not on a landslide area but i've had friends who bought landslide insurance typically landslide insurance you can only get it from lloyd's and it's very difficult and and if this was ruled as a uh, you know if the, your insurance company says sorry you had a landslide there. What caused it? We don't know. But, you know, it might even put them in a position where their insurance company says, and, and I kind of wonder what their circum as much as you want a share of their circumstances. In a typical, your house burns down. The insurance company says, we've got money to put you up for a while. We'll arrange to, you know, to provide you the money to rebuild your house if that's what's necessary. Are the certies in that kind of case where the insurance well, company is at least covering their immediate needs? Or are they expected to cover that out of their own pockets, too? Yeah, no, there's no insurance that covers most of this loss, and that is typical. And don't get me started about insurance companies. I know you're, I know you like yeah. to rile against the government, but I'll tell you, the insurance companies, private insurance companies, you, you know, they, they shouldn't call it homeowners insurance. They ought to call it fire insurance because the, what they mainly protect is against the fire and theft. Uh, but if you have anything to do with water in your house that causes the loss, the, the insurance companies have written their policies so that you almost never have coverage. So if, if, if a sewer or water line breaks, if the, uh, if the rains are heavy and there's a flood, if the storm drain backs up, 
any, almost anything water-related is excluded from these policies. And most homeowners don't know that. You know, they buy homeowner's insurance and they think they're covered from all these risks, and they're really not. And, you know, it's sad to say that's what happened with the Surtees. You know, they, they've been paying insurance premiums for years thinking they've got coverage for things like this, and they really didn't. And so that means they're stuck in a hotel or a rented house somewhere yeah. or some other circumstance like that, and nobody's paying well, the bill. But the, And is the bank expecting them to pay the mortgage on the house that fell down the hill, too? Well, both of those things are true. Yeah, they've been, I mean, they were sleeping on their son's couch for a while. They were in a hotel, I think. I think they found some other housing right now. But, you know, the, the, kind of the sad thing here is, and, and really, I don't understand this one at all. You know, some other... Some of their neighbors were forced out of their homes by the city uh, after the landslide because the, the city was concerned about further landslides and what might happen to the adjacent houses. And the city paid those people's hotel bills. What? But the, but the Surtees, oh. whose, whose home was swept away and had to go make alternate arrangements, the city hasn't paid them one penny. And, in, and instead, the city sued the Surtees. Um, at one point, I don't know if you remember that, but right I after do. the landslide, the, yeah, the, the city said, well, the Surtees house, when it was, you know, sitting there precariously, you know, cockeyed on the slope, uh, the, the city sued the Surtees for having a, a dangerous uh, premises on the hillside. I mean, it's just Unbelievable. Totally, totally backwards. So, you know, this, the city hasn't done itself any favors on this. We're hoping that reasonable minds will prevail inside the city government and that the folks who recognize that, you know, the Surtees have been have been, been dealt a really bad blow because of the city's waterline that they step up and take responsibility as soon as possible. They should. That's Dave Bricklin, an attorney for the family in Bellevue whose house fell down the hill. You got the Lars Larson show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your calls. If you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here at 866-A-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. I always like to disclose if I have a dog in the fight. I've never, uh, I've, I've smoked a cigarette or two in my life, but I've never regularly smoked uh, cigarettes. I occasionally have a cigar, uh, so I don't have a, a big problem with tobacco uh, use by adults. Now, with kids, not, not, uh, not something we should allow to happen. But the concern has been, well, it's big tobacco that's out trying to sell the kids. Well, now it turns out that maybe big technology is even worse. So I thought we'd chat about that with Claire Morell, who's a researcher at the Institute for Family Studies and the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Ms. Morell, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on. So is big tech a hazard to your kids, and do we need to do something about it? We being, uh, I guess, the American people or the government or both? Yes, it is. And as you mentioned, I think that today the biggest threat to children is no longer big tobacco, but it's big tech. And I think if we don't take action soon, that we could see a public mental health crisis among the teens and kids today that are growing up on social media. The data is increasingly starting to come out about the cause, the amount of depression, anxiety, self-harm, suicide, eating disorders that are being caused by these social media apps. And so I think it's increasingly clear that they're dangerous to our kids. And to date, the federal government has really failed to rein in big tech's influence on our kids, which means it really now falls to the states to try to pass laws to protect kids from the emotional and social harms of this unfettered, unrestricted access to social media. 
Claire, I've got to tell you, I, I want to protect kids. I'm also a little a little squeamish about laws that start to protect uh, against free speech. So understand that I've, I've got that concern. Uh, but again, when you propose things like age verification for social media, I'm, I'm all with you. You know, when you turn 18, you want to be on TikTok or Instagram or some other Snapchat or something. That's fine. You're an adult. You can make your own decisions. How do we go about doing this in a way that that protects the kids but doesn't start to infringe on the legitimate rights, free speech rights of of adults? Yes, absolutely. And I agree with you. I wouldn't want to have any regulations passed that would be impinging on our free speech rights. But I think there are categories of law. We have precedent for when we recognize as a society that certain activities or substances are harmful for children. And so as an adult, that's fine. You can make those decisions for yourself. But we know that they're dangerous to kids, and therefore we pass laws to protect um, children from those things. Like, And that's what we're getting at with these age verification laws, you know, Kids can't smoke or drink or do other dangerous activities until they turn 18 and reach adulthood. Similarly, states could really try to require, you know, parental consent to create a social media account to say that, you know, if you're going to make a social media account and you're a minor, that your parents should be uh, consenting to allowing you to be on those those platforms um, or passing laws to mandate that parents get full access to the accounts that their children have so that they can really see what exactly they are doing, who are the people sending their kids friend requests so that they can rightfully protect (laughs) their children. Because the issue today is that they're just parents can't see into this entire online world that their kids are in in order to protect them. And, And that's what our kind of proposals really seek to do is to empower parents to better protect their kids. Well, and I, I got a, I've got a six-year-old granddaughter who I just absolutely love with all my heart, and I want to see her protected. And so far, I think her parents and, and grandma and grandpa have done a pretty good job of, of screening all that. But I've also seen the kids of other adults who've at, at ages, you know, way too young, 10, 12 years of age, have ended up both being able to access some really illicit stuff how do we go about and why aren't the social media companies themselves saying we don't want the we don't want the trouble we don't want the liability uh frankly we don't think it's moral for us to to put kids in touch with you know uh, adult material or with other or with adults yeah so so far we really don't see that the platforms are doing a good job of protecting kids and i think part of that is that there's no legal duty or penalty to make them take down content that's inappropriate to kids so section 230 the law that currently governs the internet is really all carrot and no stick so it will protect companies who choose to remove obscene content it will protect them with immunity for those decisions to remove that content but there's no to say you have to take this down. So there's no incentive to do anything about it because they know that pornography, obscene, inappropriate content is really what's most sensational and keeps people engaged on these platforms. And that's how they sell more ads and make more revenue. So at the end of the day, these companies do not have children's best interests at heart. They're really out for their own profits. And so that's why it's really important that we advocate for better policies that will you know, encourage and enforce those companies taking actions to protect kids. And to your point about just trying to keep younger children away from this type of content, 
you know, putting stronger age verification measures in place so that right now the current age is 13 to get onto social media. But we know that nine and 12 year, nine to 12 year olds are on there as well. So requiring them to actually independently verify the age of users and have more robust age verification processes would help with that. Or states could really go to the other, you know, take a more extreme measure and actually completely ban social media for all kids under 18. If they wanted to kind of take the strongest measure possible, that would be the kind of category of saying this is an inappropriate activity for minors. We don't want them to have any chance of being near this type of content. And so we're going to actually just ban minors from social media. And the other question I'd, I'd have to ask you about is this. Can you do it at a state level? When the Internet flows across state boundaries and it, and it flows across international boundaries, how do you end up controlling that? That's an important question. I think this is in large part why a lot of these social media companies are really advocating against a lot of state laws is they don't want this kind of patchwork of state regulations that they have to abide by. But what you would do is the state would say, listen, for all, you know, minors who live in the state of Pennsylvania, because you know, the companies collect this data. They know they know where you live, and, and again, you have to enter your age and all this sort of thing. And so if you are in Pennsylvania and you're under the age of 18, you can't, you know, create an account with a social media company. And so states, of course, the Internet is, is global, and they can't regulate it entirely, but they could say, listen, in our state, we're not going to allow our residents under the age of 18 onto these apps. And so it would have to just be specific to their own state's residents. And again, we know these companies, with the vast amount of data that they collect, would be able to knowingly tell whether or not someone, you know, is in a certain state and then abide by the restrictions that that state has okay. put in place. Claire, I'm, com- I'm coming up to a break. So tell my parent, my parent audience, if they want to access your site and find out more about this and maybe propose some policies to their state lawmakers or local lawmakers, where do they find you? Yes, you can go to eppc.org and you can click on Claire Morrell, my scholar page, and there you'll find all these reports I've written with these legislative ideas, as well as a guide specifically for parents how to protect your kids in this digital age. That's really valuable. Claire Morrell, a researcher at the Institute for Family Studies. Claire, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Wednesday. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm glad to get to your calls, and we'll do that in just a moment. First, I have to welcome back my friend Rabbi Yaakov Menken, who is Managing Director of the Coalition for Jewish Values, the largest rabbinic public policy organization in America. Rabbi, good to have you back. And it's good to be back. Thanks so much. You betcha. Tell me what's going on at New York's Yeshiva University and being effectively forced to back up something that doesn't fit with the faith values of that university? Well, a group of students applied to the university to create YU Pride Alliance, a LGBTQ club, as a student organization. And the yeshiva, in consultation with its rabbinic leaders, because it is a religious Jewish institution, uh, said, no, we can't have that. And the students filed suit saying, well, it's a secular university. You've got to follow the secular values of America. And the judge, who just happens to be a Jewish lesbian woman who herself graduated from a Jewish college and therefore 
really knows how these uh, colleges operate and their Jewish standards, sided with the Pride Alliance and said, you've got to immediately have this this, uh, group certified as a student organization. So Yeshiva University has filed for emergency stays with both the uh, New York Supreme Court and the Supreme Court of the United States, hoping one or the other will say, we've got to hold this up. See, Rabbi, this is the thing I don't get, because about a dozen years ago, there was a pair of lesbians with a child who took the child to a a Catholic uh, K-12 school, but a private Catholic uh, K-12 school, and said, we want our daughter to go here. And they said, well, you know, you're... Your beliefs don't match with our beliefs. And I've always wondered, not whether or not you can go to the courts and get the courts to order any crazy thing they want to order, because they do sometimes order some crazy things, but why would somebody whose own personal beliefs don't square with the religious beliefs of an institution want their child to be in an institution whose very belief structure doesn't match their own. Why would you want to be a member of a club or an organization or any kind of private entity whose beliefs are contrary to your own? Well, this is the problem with these students in in this particular case and going to Yeshiva University, which, I mean, of course, is going to impact uh, religious universities of all faiths and all kinds. Uh, they, they certainly knew what Yeshiva University, it's right in the name. They knew what it stood for when they walked through the door. So one of two things is clearly true. Either the entire narrative that we've been hearing about LGBTQ is innate and irreversible, and you can't because they all grew up during an era where you know everybody knew about you, you can be this way, and you can choose your your venue, and you can choose your gender, and you can choose everything. So they went into yeshiva, and they claim, so this is much more malleable than they're claiming, because obviously they didn't feel this way before they got to the university, even though they went through puberty and all that, and knew which way they supposedly went. Or the alternative is, they went to yeshiva university knowing exactly what it stands for, and went in there intending to force it to change. That There should be no refuge for a religious Jewish student who wants to go to a religious Jewish university, that there should be no such thing as a university that operates by religious standards. Well, and and that's it. They want to bully an institution into changing to conform. And since government can't do that, it's forbidden to do that by the Constitution, um, then 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 you're going to get private actors to do it. I guess, Rabbi, the closest comparison I could come to is if I said, I'm going to pick the greenest, you know, tree hugger group I can think of. Sierra Club comes to mind, but maybe one that's more radical than that. And I'm going to get a bunch of my conservative friends to join this organization. And then we're going to force it to become an organization that advocates for drilling for oil and killing baby seals. I mean, it's why... Why would we tolerate this kind of behavior from people who say, I, I, I'm free to make, have my own beliefs, and now I want to force my beliefs on people who don't agree with me? That seems so un-American. Because yeah, as far as I'm concerned, Rabbi, it's a big world. Uh, on my show, naysayers go to the head of the line. I want to hear from the people who disagree with me. It doesn't mean I'm going to be persuaded by them, but I want my audience to hear, and I want them to hear how I respond to what might be sensible arguments. 
It doesn't mean I'm going to change the nature of the show, but it, it does mean I want the audience to hear both sides. But hearing both sides is one thing. Forcing organizations, which are groups, of, big groups of people, in this case, Yeshiva University, to say, you must toe the party line. And until you do, we're going to drag you through the courts. We're going to drag you through the mud. We'll try to cut off your funding. We'll try to get you canceled. Uh, and then maybe at some point, you'll, you'll finally just knuckle under. It, it really is about forced conformity. Do you, do you have a moment for another related example? Sure. Well, the reporter Taylor Lorenz at the Washington Post is now crowing about the fact that LGBTQ activists and a trans woman, I think, in, in England, have forced Kiwi Farms off the air because apparently Kiwi Farms is involved in a whole lot of bullying of LGBTQ activists. And, and I'm not in favor of bullying at all, so I don't, and I have no opinion because I never even saw the Kiwi Farms website when it was alive. But I do have to say that Taylor Lorenz is the same woman who doxed libs of TikTok yep. and pointed out that she was an Orthodox Jew, which is something that the woman herself had carefully kept to herself because she, she knew it could impact her work and it could target her community during a time of increased anti-Semitism. But no, Taylor Lorenz called that information out to increase the bullying, and when people started bullying the wrong Chayarechik, she said, you don't want to harass that one, that you've got to go look more detailed. This is not the right woman. In other words, she didn't tell them stop bullying. She told them to aim better. Which is and, to say that Taylor Lorenz is not against bullying as she claims to be. She's all about controlling the narrative. We have to shut down libs of TikTok and we have to shut down Kiwi Farms so that we have total conformity of ideology, which is, of course, the same thing that these students are trying to do to Yeshiva University. Do you know what I think they're driving toward? Because I thought Biden did this last Thursday night by saying the great uniter from his State of the Union address turns into half of America is, is to be condemned as a threat to the republic. And I thought, well, that's not very unifying, Joe, uh, but, but I may not be. The, I'm not the only person who's pointed that out. But when you when you want to play the game that way. Uh, you know, most conservatives were not into setting things on fire like Antifa. We're not into rioting or looting or, or any of those things. We never have been. You know, the Tea Party usually would have a big rally and they'd leave the place cleaner than when they got there. But when we're backed into a corner and you say you are not going to be allowed to believe as you like, you're not going to be left alone, which is most of what the Bill of Rights is about. Leave me alone. Let the government leave me alone. Let me live my own life. When you want to play the game that way, at some point, I think turnabout is going to be fair play. Uh, I, I don't look forward to that day because I don't think it's going to be very pretty. Uh, but, but it really strikes me that if that's the way they're going to play the game and they're going to essentially say, you're not going to be allowed to exist in this society and believe as you choose, uh, then, then we may just have to start playing hardball. Someone shared a meme today from a trans organization pointing out that 90, 98% of straight men won't date a trans man become woman, meaning to a, a woman who's actually no not kidding. a woman but another man. Yeah. And they claimed that that was because of hate. So they just called every Orthodox Jew in the world hateful. It's not difficult to figure out who the real bigot is in that equation. No, it isn't at all. Great you and me hateful and bigoted and transphobic and homophobic and misogynist for believing the same biblical beliefs we had a hundred years ago. 
Absolutely right. Rabbi Yaakov, thank you very much. That's Rabbi Yaakov Menken from the Coalition for Jewish Values. We'll be back in a moment to talk about John Fetterman and Dr. Oz. Welcome back to Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I think I've always been honest with you. I've always told you that I will tell you if I have a dog in the fight. Now, some people don't like that metaphor, but folks, it's a metaphor. Okay. It's not actual dogs fighting. Uh, I don't have a college degree. Uh, I, I plan to get one one of these days. I went to school for about a year and a half. Then I thought, well, I can work and go to school. And, you know, I'm kind of on the 60-year plan. <laughs> but and, and who knows? Maybe I'll get one one of these days. There certainly aren't any liberal universities out there offering me an honorary degree, and I wear that as a badge of honor. I don't mind people going to college. I think it's a good idea for some jobs. I don't think 40 or 50 or 60% of kids need to go to college, and I think a lot of kids got sold a bill of goods. Just go to school. Study whatever feels good and borrow as much money as you want. In fact, I've heard one public service announcement that runs it saying, I never thought they'd loan me more money that I could safely pay off. Well, listen, bub, you're 18 years old, can read, write, and count. You borrowed the money. You need to pay it back, except that Uncle Joe, Uncle Sugar, has decided, no, you don't have to pay it back. If you got one of those stupid degrees that ends in the word studies, you don't have to pay the money back. We'll have a whole bunch of people who've never sat in a college classroom pay it off. $500 billion might even go as high as a trillion. A lot of us think it's illegal. And I wanted to ask Elizabeth Slattery about that, who's a senior legal fellow at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Elizabeth, welcome back to the show. Joe Biden's trying as hard as he can to make sure this thing doesn't face legal challenges because you tell me your honest uh, opinion of this. Do you think it's legal? No, there there certainly is no law that gives the president to unilaterally cancel half a trillion dollars in federally held student debt. And that's why the administration has been scrambling with each legal challenge that's been filed uh, to try to get rid of those cases by revising uh, the plan, if you want to call it a plan, revising it to, to try to make those legal challenges go away. And by revising it, what you mean, if I can help translate that, is they're cutting certain large groups of students out saying, oh, sorry, we told you we'd pay off your loan. We're not going to pay it off because they're trying to trim off the edges so that they can avoid the, the legal challenge that might bring the whole thing down. That's right. And, you know, that's part of the problem. This is not a rule of law that we have. Uh, this is, uh, you know, classic rule of men. We're going to change the rules um, on the fly. We're going to try to, uh, you know, make it opt out, even though uh, they never said anything about opting out being an option until um, our, our initial lawsuit was filed. Uh, and then, you know, that announcement came via the White House press secretary and then the education department very quickly edited its website to mention, oh, there is an opt out option. Um, but from the very beginning, they said eight million people who are already in the system uh, would have their debt automatically canceled. Is it being automatically canceled? Well, uh, they, they the administration, um, you know, had their feet held to the fire a little bit by the judge in in our case, Uh the, the judge made them uh, pinky swear not to start any of the cancellations <laughs> until we had a chance, uh, an opportunity to file an amended complaint because they tried to moot our case uh, by opting, uh, opting our plaintiff out of the program. I mean, I mean, if they wanted to do it this way, I guess they could just say is every time somebody brings a lawsuit, uh, OK, we're going to opt you out of the program and, and just cut you out from from your ability, basically take away your status of having standing before the courts to challenge the program, right? That's that's what it sounds like they're doing. 
Yeah, and it all comes back to the fact that the administration doesn't want to defend this on the merits because they're on really shaky legal ground. The the law that they rely on, the Heroes Act of 2003, this does not give the administration a blank uh, a blank check to cancel the debt of 40 million people, um, you know, nearly uh, half a trillion dollars in federally held student debt. And, um, you know, so they're, they're scrambling uh, to try to avoid judicial scrutiny. Well, tell me this. I want to know what the real agenda is. And, I, and you, this doesn't go directly to your case. But is the real agenda here that Joe said he'd made a promise to all these students and he knew he knows some of them are voters or their moms and dads are voters. So he wants to make a promise to pay off the debt, knowing that if the promise evaporates after this November's election and people have short memories uh, that they can figure something else out before the 2024 election, they just need this thing to last till the middle of November, right? I mean, the timing certainly makes that a possibility that this is uh, an appeal to certain voters, you know, with the midterm elections coming up. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, they haven't been able to cancel any debt yet. and We're in the middle of October. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's possible that it, it could be stalled out um, you know, beyond the election at this point. Well, and what is there any case to be made? And I've had a few calls from people like this. And by the way, I have no other dog in the fight. I, I never took out student loans. I paid my own way. Um, and I wasn't rich. And my parents, my dad wasn't rich either. And my mom was dead by that time. So I, I don't really have a dog in the fight that way. But I've talked to so many people who said, well, look, I took my son or daughter's debt or even their own debt, and they transferred it into a private loan. And they get treated entirely differently. They're told, oh, I'm sorry, you already paid off the loan with another loan, you're still in debt, and we're not going to pay a dime for you. Is there any equal protection there? Uh, I, I'm not a lawyer, as you can tell. But, but, it, but a lot of those people feel thoroughly screwed over uh, by this because yeah. they say, look, I was going to pay it, but I got it to a better interest rate and better terms, and because I tra- changed the nature of the loan, I still owe the money, but now they're telling me, but Joe's program doesn't pay for it. Yeah. And, you know, I know plenty of people who are in that same situation. And it really underscores why this is something that that has to be decided by the people's representatives in Congress. Uh, Thank you, Elizabeth. I appreciate it. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson show. Pleasure to be with you. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's easy. 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Let's go first to Colton. I was calling in to talk about uh, religious freedom and the LGBTQ. I had emailed you quite a while ago about it, and I haven't had a chance to call in yet. Make the argument for my audience. What's your argument? Well, I just wanted your thoughts on uh, where a person's religious freedom would override uh, another person's uh, choices. Like, I I am an LGBTQ member, so uh, what are your thoughts on that? So so you're talking about uh, sexual... Sexual preference versus religious rights. Well, uh, religion is mentioned specifically, beliefs, you know, are mentioned specifically in the Constitution. Sex is not. Uh, but, but having said that, you have a right to do whatever you want. It's, it, isn't sex a private matter, or is sex something where you have to wear it on your sleeve? No, I agree with you that it's a, a private matter. Okay, then why do you have to worry about your rights at that point? If you say, I have private behavior that I engage in, and I assume that most people's sexual behavior is private, 
You know, I don't run around telling stories about Tina and me. We've been married for 25 years this year, but I have no interest in sharing that with other people. I don't have to drive down the street with an equal sign on the back of my car. And I frankly don't even understand what that's all about. Could you tell me what that's all about? Why? I mean, I might put a an NRA sticker on my car, uh, although where I live, I'm likely to have my car uh, slashed, uh, get the tires slashed if I do that. But tell me, what is the point of advertising your sexual preference? Can you tell me? Um, I don't do it myself. I don't have bumper stickers on my car, so I couldn't what you, really What do you it. think um, of the people in your community who do? I know a number of gay people, and none of them have equal signs on their cars or anywhere else. And they don't wear their uh, sexual preference or sexual behavior uh, on their sleeve. They don't put it on a T-shirt or anywhere else. So, so w- what are you asking? If I have religious beliefs and... and your religious, my religious beliefs say that your behavior is is shameful behavior. Am I allowed to believe that? Yes, you are. But okay. now, I, in my case, I don't have a religious belief, so I don't view it as wrong. So, does well, your belief override my belief? Well, I'm not trying to override. Where would it override? Where would we? In other words, so I, the famous example of how far my rights go is my right to f- swing my fist ends when it connects with your nose. So when my behavior starts to hit your behavior, the, the fist thing is kind of a famous example. I, I can't remember who did it. I think it was a judge who said my, my right to swing my fist ends where it connects with your nose. But how does my religious belief interfere with your private sexual behavior? So the thing I was thinking of is like sweet cakes where they said oh, they the weren't going to provide a yeah yeah and, and the bakery uh, I tend, okay just so everybody understands there was a bakery and the bakery served all kinds of people gay straight men women black white and everything else and one day somebody came in and said uh we want to we want a wedding cake made we want you to engage in creating a unique cake for us now that's for, i could argue that's a form of speech art takes lots and lots of different forms my speech is just plain old speech but sometimes i write it down on paper but if somebody said to me lars i'd like you to write some stuff for my website and i said well what's your website about and they say no, it's about uh, my racist beliefs or whatever. I'd say, well, I have no interest in being involved in that. That conflicts with my beliefs. So when a customer came to them and said, we want you to make a cake that celebrates a gay wedding, which, by the way, at the time that case first erupted, um, the gay marriage at that point was illegal. It, it was not legal. The Supreme Court had not decided Obergfell yet. And I still don't think the Supreme Court should have been able to do what they did. But having said that, they said... We're not, we will sell you a cake, but we're not going to make a special cake to celebrate something that we deeply disagree with. Now, should they have had the right to do that? And if so, who are they discriminating against? Were they discriminating against a gay person? Or are they saying, we don't want to take part in a particular event that we don't believe in? Well, I guess in that case, since they're providing a service to the public, um, like I was raised in a religion. And as that religion... Well, let me give you a service to the public, Colton. Let me give you a service. You open a hotel. Now, you can't turn people away because they're black or because they're white or brown. You can't turn them away because they're Jewish or Catholic or Muslim. You can't do any of that. That's prohibited because you're providing a service. Somebody comes to you and says, we'd like to use your hotel as a gathering for our Nazi group. Can they turn them away for that? Um, I would not. I guess so. I would say yes. So if somebody says, look, I'm, uh, I've that, that, deeply that, held that's Christian... That's something that harms someone. 
I believe that's something, you know, that's a well, belief but that hold harms on, Colton, if you so. say it harms somebody, every time anybody is turned away from a business, it's, it causes harm to somebody. I mean, if somebody says, I yeah. want to stay in your hotel, and you say, no, you can't stay in my hotel, uh, that, that, they have to go find another hotel, which the, the gay people who brought the, the case against the Sweet Cakes Bakery were not harmed. They could have gone down the street to any number of other bakeries, or they could have said, yeah, make us a cake. And we'll decorate it ourselves because the decoration is what was at issue, not the cake itself. They had gay customers. They sold cakes and cupcakes and everything else to people who are gay. So they didn't discriminate against a gay person. They said, we choose not to take part in making a special cake for celebration of a particular uh, event because we disagree with it. it. It runs counter to our... I've used the example, Colton, I occasionally go hunting and I've been involved to go... Uh, I've been invited to go hog hunting, right? So say yeah. I, I go hog, I've never gone, I'd like to go. I've gone deer hunting and elk hunting and all kinds of other things. If I go out and I hunt uh, a feral pig, and then I take that, that pig carcass, you know, because I want to I get the meat, and I take that pig to a, uh, a, a halal, uh, a Muslim butcher shop, and there are Muslim butcher shops, and I say, I want you to butcher this pig. What do you think they're going to tell me? Probably no. <laughs> yeah, and why? And why are they telling me no? Well, because of their religious beliefs. Because butchering a pig would violate their... Now, should they have the right to, to say, we're not going to butcher your pig, Lars, even though we offer butchering services, bring us a goat, bring us a cow, bring us anything else, we'll butcher it, a sheep, but we will not butcher your pig. Do they have a right to turn me down because of their religious beliefs? Um, I'm not sure. See, my viewpoint on that would be is if something went against your religion, you shouldn't be involved in something where that might come up. Well, hold on. Almost anything could involve your religion. It, it really could, because we now have cases, yeah. I think one of them is coming to the Supremes, that involves website design. Because somebody came into a website designer and said, I'd like you to design uh, something to celebrate our gay marriage. And uh, that one is coming to the U.S. Supreme Court. And they say, you have to make it. And you say, but it violates my beliefs. So you should stay out of every business in which beliefs could come up? Because I don't know if we could name a business where, where your beliefs might come up. Can you name one? Photography, no, I guess flowers, not. making cupcakes, all of those things. Your religious beliefs may come to the fore. And yet, on one hand, you're willing to say the Muslim butcher shop can turn me down to butcher a pig. But the cake shop run by the Christians cannot turn people down for making a gay wedding cake. Interesting comparison. But like I said, double standards are none at all. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you and a real pleasure to welcome back to the program Professor Alan Dershowitz, one of America's most accomplished appeals court attorneys on capital cases. He has managed to get 13 wins for clients out of 15 cases. He also taught at Harvard for just short of half a century, and he's written most recently The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. Professor, welcome back. Well, thank you so much for having me. 
You've commented recently, and I wanted to ask you about this, if you can talk about the fact that you said you've read the warrant uh, produced by the FBI yeah. and the affidavit that went with it to back it up for the raid on Donald Trump's home just a few weeks ago. And you say that any grand jury in D.C. would be willing to or would ha- find the evidence there uh, to indict uh, President Trump uh, for crimes uh, that were committed. Can you expand on that a bit? Sure. As the former chief judge in the New York Court of Appeals once said, a prosecutor can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. If it's in the District of Columbia and the person is a Republican, they could get him to indict a tuna sandwich or an egg sandwich. Um, There's a very, very low threshold, just like Hillary Clinton could easily have been indicted for what she did by a Montana jury or a Mississippi jury. Uh, the same thing is true of a D.C. jury. It, it would be a very easy thing because it's a low threshold to indict President Trump just based on the undisputed fact that he has in his possession classified material and material that should go to the archives. It would be a minor offense, but he could be indicted. That's why we need prosecutorial discretion to make sure that people who are about to run for president against the incumbent president aren't selectively prosecuted, which would be the case if he were to be prosecuted. Professor Dershowitz, do you believe that uh, President Trump's assertions that he declassified all the materials that he took to Mar-a-Lago? Should we believe that? And does that matter when it comes to indicting somebody for having classified materials when he was the only person in the country that could unilaterally declassify material? It's a question of fact and evidence that if he were to be indicted and he raised that defense, um, if it were a defense, he'd have the burden of demonstrating that he actually did declassify at the time he was president. He could do that through his own testimony. He could do it through the testimony of others. Um, If there was contradictory evidence, a fact finder would have to make that decision. But uh, if he did declassify everything, that would be an absolute defense to any charges relating to the possession of classified material. Do you believe the FBI was truly seeking uh, evidence of a crime, which is what it takes to get a warrant? You've got to have probable cause to believe that a crime was committed and that evidence of the crime is there. Is that what that raid was really about, or is there another reason the FBI did that? Well, I don't think that's what the raid was about. They could have gotten all this material by subpoena. Or if they thought it was dangerous for him to have that material, they could have sought a search warrant back in February. Or they could have executed the warrant the day they got it instead of waiting two days. I think the reason they got the search warrant is they didn't want to get into a legal dispute about a subpoena where the judge might have ruled against them. And because the search warrant allows you to search places and areas that you could never get a subpoena for, like Mrs. Trump's closet or perhaps the locked safe. Um, so search warrants are, are easy to get, too. Their judges sign them like parents give out Halloween candy, and very easy to get them. And the Justice Department rules, which Attorney General Garland quoted, are that you don't go for a broad search warrant when you could reasonably get the material through less intrusive means like a subpoena. So although there was probable cause, laid out in the affidavit, I believe the Justice Department was wrong in seeking a search warrant instead of simply enforcing the subpoena. Remember, they had a subpoena out for these boxes. Yep. All they had to do was go to court and say to the judge, we're having trouble with the, with the Trump lawyers. We'd like you to enforce the subpoena. 
uh, demand that the 15 boxes be brought in, then appoint the special master, have that master go through the boxes and see what's privileged, what's not privileged, what's declassified. And we could do this in a, in a perfectly reasonable legal way. That's the way it should have been done. Uh, I'm talking to Professor Alan Dershowitz, 50, almost 50 years at Harvard and the author most recently of The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. Professor, uh, since that's in the news lately and we've been talking about it a lot, does the FBI have any integrity at this point, given all the things that we've heard uh, and read and seen documented about the FBI's activities, uh, especially regarding elections in the last half dozen years? Well, the FBI itself has great integrity. Its um, members work very hard. They're great people. When I had a threat on my life once by a neo-Nazi, they came and accompanied me for two days. They were the, you know, the nicest guys in the world, so I wouldn't ever paint with a broad brush. I think there's a problem at the top. I think that uh, there are bad apples. One of them was just forced to resign because he was too political. Others in the past have been pressured to resign. So I think that there is a problem in the FBI, but it doesn't affect individual agents. Uh, It really is a a systemic problem that has to be dealt with. There has to be some oversight of the FBI, either through the Justice Department or through the courts. But that's true of in in a government of checks and balances. That's true of every government agency. Nothing should be beyond checks and balances. Well, and yet, does the does the Congress do an effective job of oversight when the Congress couldn't get Facebook to admit that it had been apparently directed by the FBI to interfere with an American election, but a podcaster and a very accomplished one of that, Joe Rogan, did manage to get the head of Facebook, Zuckerberg, uh, to, to tell him what the Congress couldn't get from him. Uh, it doesn't sound like the, the, the Congress is very well situated to do the oversight. Well, Congress did a terrible, terrible job on the uh, January 6th matter. Um, They conducted a a kangaroo session where only one side was heard, and the Republicans, uh, at least the Republicans who supported President Trump, didn't even have subpoena power. Uh, So you can't expect congressional oversight when you have a one-sided biased kangaroo committee. That's That's what the committee was. I'm talking to Professor Alan Dershowitz, whose latest book is The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. So, Professor, does principle always come with a price? Well, today it does. Um, Just the story I tell in my book is about what happened largely on Martha's Vineyard in New York and places like that, where I used to be loved by liberals and uh, civil libertarians because I came down often on the side of the Democrats and the left, not because I intended to do that, because those were the people who were being attacked. But when I applied the exact same principles to President Trump, who I voted against twice and who I'm looking forward to voting against the third time, I'm not a Republican. Um, many of my friends of many years abandoned me. Larry David starts screaming at me. I'm disgusting. I'm disgusting because I patted Mike Pompeo on the back. He was my former student, and I was congratulating him for the work he did in the Middle East. Um, the library didn't carry my books. The library can't, didn't allow me to speak. <clears throat> the price of cancellation was very high, particularly for my family. My wife, who didn't even want me to defend President Trump in front of the Senate, 
uh, has been made into a pariah. I'm talking to Alan Dershowitz, a former Harvard professor for almost 50 years, the author most recently of The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. We'll be back in just a moment. I'll be glad to get your calls in a while at 866-HEY-LARS. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And my guest is Alan Dershowitz. Uh, The professor has given us his time generously over the years. And I look forward to talking to him about his new book called The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. Because just as we ended the last segment, you were speaking about the, the very real human cost, not just to people who take principled stands, but to their family members, to their friends and everywhere else. And you've said that uh, lawyers are afraid to defend Donald Trump, President Trump, uh, even yeah. if he's right, because they worry that they will be professionally canceled. Yeah, several of them called me, some of the top lawyers in the country, and said, after what happened to you, we don't want to be Dershowitz. We don't want to have happened to our family what happened uh, to you. I mean, the stories are just unbelievable. Uh, some people would like to maintain a friendship with us, but they've been warned that if they're seen in public with us, they will be excluded and they will not be allowed to uh, uh, join in events. So one of my oldest friends, who was a former student and who I helped a lot, um, didn't invite me to a large event. And when I called him and asked him why, he said, oh, it would be social suicide for me to invite you to that event. Nobody would ever invite me to their events. And when people have uh, included my wife and me, they have been in turn excluded and they've lost friends. It's exactly the same as McCarthyism in the 1950s, which I remember well, because I was the student government president at Brooklyn College fighting against McCarthyism back then, and I'm fighting against the new McCarthyism now. So, Professor, how have we gone from an America that just a few years ago, there was a popular uh, fictional retelling of a real-life story, Bridge of Spies. Tom Hanks played James Donovan, who was an attorney who did something hugely unpopular at the time. He accused this Russian, or he defended this accused Russian operative. And I'm curious, how do we get from where people like that are lionized to say it's, it's great that he took this principled stand to today's America where you can be canceled for a word or a phrase or, or, or defending the wrong person? Or go back just further in history to John Adams, uh, who defended the people accused of the Boston Massacre, or Abraham Lincoln, who defended uh, guilty people and and did it proudly, or Thurgood Marshall. Uh, We no longer live in that America. We live in an America of McCarthyism. You know, it's interesting that President Biden misused the term fascism the other day when he accused supporters of Donald Trump of being semi-fascist or near-fascist. I don't like to use the term fascist, but if he was going to use it, he should be using it against the hard left and the Democratic Party as well. Uh, Both the hard, hard, hard right and the hard, hard, hard left are totalitarian in their mindset. They are so sure they're right that they can't brook dissent. They don't need due process. Why do you need due process if we know you're guilty? Why do we need free speech if we know what the truth is? That's what's happened in America today, and it's it's tragic, because without free speech, there can be no freedom. I'm talking to Alan Dershowitz. Professor Dershowitz is the author most recently of The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. Well, then thank God for the founders of the country who'd lived under a tyrannical government and said, all right, we're going to write 
a constitution and a bill of rights that celebrate the rights of individuals, and we're going to say that they came from God and not from government, because if we don't do that, uh, you know, they are they are very much at risk. If if we didn't have that basis, we'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? Yeah, and look at what happened recently. A professor at Harvard Law School, a professor at Yale Law School, wrote an op-ed, which the New York Times willingly accepted and published, calling for the trashing of the Constitution, saying, you know, this Constitution is not a particularly good document because it doesn't always produce the right results, the results we on the left want. And, uh, you know, there have been attacks in academia against freedom of speech, against due process. And, uh, you know, I would have thought that being a libertarian or a liberal or a conservative would want you to stick with what's worked for 250 years, and the Constitution has worked. It's not made things easy, because it wasn't intended to make things easy, but it avoids tyranny. And yet now today, the greatest danger, the greatest danger is tyranny from the left, not the right. Why? The right is the past. They're not running colleges and universities today. The left is the future. The hard, radical, intolerant, totalitarian left is the future because they're the ones that are training our future leaders, our college students, our university students, our law school students. And that's what's so dangerous, why I, as a person of the left, a person who is a civil libertarian and a liberal, have been spending so much of my time attacking the hard left. That's why I wrote my book, The Price of Principle. And the villains of that book are not the conservatives. The villains of that book are the radical leftists, the censorial leftists, the Larry Davids, the Caroline Kennedys, and the others who cannot tolerate differences of opinion. The professor, the professor's book is The Price Principle. So since you mentioned colleges, I have to ask you, we had a president who just recently said, I'm going to give away half a trillion dollars to pay off the debts yeah. of people who went to college and got, I would call them bad, I have called them bad degrees, meaning a degree that didn't add to your employability or your paycheck right. enough to be able to pay it back. And he did it with apparently no legal authority at all. I know they're trying to hang it around the HEROES Act, which was, that was not the purpose of the HEROES Act. It was to take care of military, law enforcement, and first responders after the terrorist attack on 9-11. But he does this kind of thing all the time where he'll say, I'm gonna have an executive order. And and he gets shot down in the courts all the time. How How do we rein in a government where Joe Biden could give away half a trillion dollars if he walked over to Capitol Hill and got his friends in the House and the Senate and said, here, pass a bill that says I can give away half a trillion dollars. Otherwise, he doesn't have the authority, and yet he does it. And most of the media is, wow, this is great. Uh, the president is giving away money. We never knew he had that power. Yeah, he doesn't have that power. And I'm involved in consulting with some people trying to bring a lawsuit, not only against him exercising the power to... Uh, grant relief only to people who haven't paid their debts, not to people who did pay their debts. But we're also mapping a challenge on the Iran deal, which is not a deal. It's a treaty. Uh, It looks like a treaty. It quacks like a treaty. It walks like a treaty. And yet the president wants to ram it down the throat of Americans uh, without the two-thirds approval of the Senate, which is required for a treaty. So I think we're seeing a great expansion of executive power at the expense of legislative power. And so we need to use the judiciary to impose that check back on the executive 
because it's, you know, Congress, I mean, the framers of the Constitution intended economic decisions to be made by the House of Representatives to start and then to the Senate. It's in the Constitution, and it ought to be read by Democrats and Republicans alike. His latest book is called The Price of Principle. He is Alan Dershowitz, a noted uh, appellate court attorney and former Harvard professor. Why integrity is worth the consequences. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey, does the high price of CBD have you rationing or just doing without? You shouldn't have to live that way. Get the relief you need right now. Go to genericcbd.com. They sell premium CBD for less, a lot less. Here's an example. A leading brand of CBD salve costs about 50 bucks. At genericcbd.com, it's on sale, $19.95. The amazing CBD muscle and joint cream that I've been telling you about the last few weeks, you see similar cream selling for up to $80. And that's if you can find it. At genericcbd.com, it's in stock and on sale, $29.95. That's a $50 sale. They have incredible prices on all their CBD products, but you're not going to find them in any store, at least not yet. You can only get them at genericcbd.com. Give them a try. You might be shocked at how much money you save. That's genericcbd.com, your number one source for generic CBD, genericcbd.com. These products and statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease or illness. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And obviously, in the last few years, I've been buying a lot more kids' books because I have a six-year-old granddaughter. So, And I love books, too, which means I want her to love books. And she does at this point. She doesn't read as well as some do, but she reads very, very well for somebody who's six years old and just in first grade. So when I saw this story that kids' books with a moral in them, something that actually teaches an important life lesson and a lesson about morals. But is it the job of Amazon.com to decide which morals are okay and which morals are forbidden? I thought we'd talk about that with Cassandra Spencer, who's a best-selling author and publishing director of Defiance Press and Publishing. Cassandra, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. What should my audience know about what Amazon is doing? Uh, with uh, with kids' books. Absolutely. So we recently um, released a book at Defiance Press called Looks Like a Cheetah to Me. Um, it was a book written by Nick Michelli, and it was illustrated by his son, David Michelli. Um, it was just a charming, you know, very cute kids' book that kind of talked about the whole issue of... Um, it's basically about a cheetah who shows up to a race of gazelles one day wearing horns, uh, claiming that he's only eaten grass for a year and that he wants to compete with the gazelles now. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> oh, I see where you're really, going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. Really cute story. You know, nothing that should be considered inappropriate for a child at all. The words transgender are never even mentioned. Um, there's obviously nothing in here. And it's a, it's a children's picture book that rhymes. And so you would think, you know, you mentioned your granddaughter, you would think that the audience for a book such as this would be kind of like preschool to early elementary school. Yep. And so uh, on the back end, one of my jobs at Defiance Press is to set up these Amazon pages. And so I had the age set as ages, you know, three to eight as the recommended reading age. Um, And as well as we set the categories and, you know, I had it down as children's book, humorous, you know, children's book, girls and women. Um, everything's fine at first. Nothing happens. 
And then all of a sudden, I start getting emails from the author, and I go to check the Amazon page, and they've now set the book as being appropriate for ages 18 and up. Eight adults only? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, completely absurd. This is a children's picture book. Like I said, there is not even a mention of the word transgender, you know, nothing overtly political in it, nothing that should be considered offensive for any parent to read to a child. Um, But they marked the book as 18 and up. Now, they're doing this. You read this, and I read it the same. Well, I would imagine you read it this way, that what Amazon is doing is we see the message in there. And, yes, it is about transgender, but you're giving it in the form of a parable or a metaphor or an analogy, which I, my audience knows I love parables and analogies and metaphors. Uh, you're, you're doing it in that way where the child can say, yeah, that's not fair for that cheetah to come out and run a race against gazelles. And I'll tell you, I've had on this show before – uh, young ladies especially, who've had to either run or swim, and these are college age or better, young ladies who've had to run or swim against biological males, they don't think it's right either. And I would imagine their families don't either. So the message is one that's out there. Now, there may be some people who politically say, well, I don't agree with that. Uh, but young men can pretend to be women and swim or run against them and win the gold medal instead. Okay, if you believe in that, buy those books for your kids and, and don't buy this one. But you've got Amazon telling people, don't buy this for anything other than an adult. Oh, absolutely. That's really where the problem is, is you have these, you know, unelected tech bureaucrats trying to make decisions for people because that affects the ability for the book to end up on children's um, bestseller list. And, you know, we were just part of this, I think, is because the book got bombarded Um, If you look at the reviews for the book, all of the five-star reviews are verified purchases, and yet there's a bunch of one-star reviews, not a single one. I went and checked right before this interview just so I was positive of what I was saying. Not a single one of the one-star reviews is from somebody who has actually purchased the book. They just see what the book is about. They see the basic message and say, I don't like that message, so I'm going to give it a review even though I've never read it. I mean... I'll tell you, Cassandra, that, that, that one actually resonates with me because I get lots of emails from people who say, I've never heard your show, but I hate what you have to say. And I think, well, that's interesting, but uh, okay, fine, go ahead. And the other thing is, Cassandra, you know, as I said, I've spent a lot more time picking out kids' books in the last six years for my granddaughter and, and have read to her a lot and helped her learn how to read. I mean, she's in first grade now, so teachers are doing that as well. But it, it's, it won't be the first book in which an animal uh, pretends to be something the animal isn't. You know, like like animals that dress up in human clothes or animals that act like humans or speak, you know, and things like that. It's not exactly a unique idea that way. What's unique about it is that you present this race that even a child could see is not a fair race. Oh, 100%. And this really is... You know, it gets to the heart of it where it's just a silly book, like I said. Cassandra, thanks for fighting the good fight, and thanks for being defiant when it comes to one of the biggest retailers on planet Earth. We appreciate what you do at Defiance Press. By the way, folks, the book is called Looks Like a Cheetah to Me. Now, there's a little emphasis added there, but I think it, it fits right in with the story. That's Cassandra Spencer. This is the Lars Larson Show. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self direct 
self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com.